0: This time on CQ Speaks, two editors try to be brief. We encounter some unfamiliar neighbors and I get jealous of a writer who doesn't produce solely through panic. That's coming up on CQ Speaks. Dear listeners, and welcome to CQ Speaks, a podcast from the Carolina Quarterly. We've got two conversations coming to you today, both fiction related, from different sides of the editorial desk. Our fiction editors, Matt and Paul, talk about different approaches they have to different publishing media, including at thecarolinacquarterly.com. But first, I have a conversation with Jenny Coe, author of um, a short story Close to Home, which was featured in. CQ 67.2, our spring-summer 2018 issue. So without any further delay, let's get to that conversation. I am absolutely delighted to be joined today by Jenny Coe, author of Close to Home, which is a short fiction piece that we featured in our 67.2 spring-summer 2018 issue. Jenny is the author of The Gods Will Hear Us Eventually, which has just recently come out from Ethos Books and was recently shortlisted for the 2017 Commonwealth Short Story Prize. Her stories and essays have appeared in Kyoto Journal, Best New Singaporean Short Stories Volume 2 from Epigram Books, uh, Columbia Journal, and uh, Litro. Among others, she graduated Phi Kappa Phi with a Master of Professional Writing from the University of Southern California, where she was the Fiction Editor for the Southern California Review. Um, And so we will talk about a lot of that. Um, But Jenny, I have been looking forward to this interview for quite a while and am very selfishly excited to be talking with you, Um, so thanks for making the time to speak with me today.
1: Thank you for having me. Oh, sorry. I just want to add something. Sure. So um, this story was actually shortlisted for the Commonwealth Short Story Prize, like this close to home.
0: Oh, fantastic! not the
1: novel. Yeah. So actually, this is
0: the one. Well, congratulations. So amazing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, no, I'm so glad to hear this. I I love this story. Um, I reread it a couple of times over the past couple of days, which has been a real treat for me personally. Um, so I'd like to get sort of straight into the story, and we continue a long three-episode streak of offering tons of spoilers, so you don't need to feel like you have to leave anything out in your discussion of it. Um, oh, okay, great. <laughs> yes, um, this, is, this is the way we operate. Um, so can you talk us through the piece? Where are we? Who are we with? What happens?
1: So... What we have is that we follow an account of a 10-year-old boy who has been sent to live with his neighbour when his mom had cancer. So an unlikely friendship evolved between this little boy and his neighbour who is an elderly lady. So I think what we can see is an interesting friendship between a very, very young child and a really old lady, which makes for interesting. stories (laughs)
0: yeah no that was a like a fascinating dynamic i was so in on what this little boy nikki was going to do with this little old lady next door um because they they kind of get together and and nikki at least is is a little bit uncertain of how that is going to go right yes naturally and
1: understandably so (laughs) yeah <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting because at the start of the story we also hear that, you know, he's not really familiar with her. It's not like she mm-hmm. is their family friend for years and she's sort of almost like a stranger to him. And it's kind of unnerving for a ten year old to go to a, a strange setting and live there. You know, not just in the day but, you know, uh, for, 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 for weeks, you know, on end. Um, yeah, so so that that's kind of like the, the premise to the story.
0: And so how did you come to this story? Where did this story come from for you?
1: Yeah, so I was actually inspired by several things, you know. First was actually an account of my husband and how when he was a child, uh, for a period of time he was set to live with a nanny who lived just above his parents' flat apartment. Oh, okay you know yeah so back then it was the 80s and his parents were dual income so both of them were working and it wasn't so uncommon you know at least in Singapore for that to happen you know I think which explains why I dated the story back a little bit um, mm-hmm. in at, uh, in 1998 um, these days at least in Singapore parents prefer to send their children to a full day childcare mm-hmm. and then bring them home at night or to have a live-in domestic help to take care of their kids so you know when I heard when I first heard this from my husband, I found it, you know it was like really fascinating to um like the dynamics of having such an arra- arrangement you know what it means to live so close to your parents but not with them, you know the kind of trust you know um, the parents have with their neighbors you know mm-hmm. something that we don't really see so often nowadays you know we, we are becoming more and more nucleus you know as a, a sort of like relationship between each other as opposed to in a past where I think it has more of a a village kind of mindset I mean. Back then, it wasn't a village in Singapore, but the mindset is more like we can all help each other. You see, so I mean, of course, and it's not just um an, a purely altruistic thing, but of course there's a, an economic transaction to it. You know, you pay the person to look after your kid, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, so it's, it's just really fascinating to me. I think that was what inspired me to to write this story.
0: Yeah, no, and that's interesting because it does like setting it in the not too distant past. Um, and having these kinds of kinds of relationships and sort of modes of care makes the story feel a little bit timeless. It's a little bit sort of out of time, um, which I think is really fascinating, especially because it takes place all really in this one particular location, too.
1: Yes, it's true, as in, like, we or even like two locations, but yes, they're so similar to each other that literally lightning like
0: store. It and is, and it's like it's, a mirroring of of them of them too. They seem very similar.
1: Exactly, you know. I think like in in Singapore and I believe in the states as well. Uh, when we live in apartment blocks, a lot of time the a lot of times the the layout of the apartment is very similar mm-hmm. so I think you know it's like entering a home that is so similar in layout to your own home but so completely different as well and the kind of minute observations he have about Auntie Lo and her husband and her her own kid you know mm-hmm. it, it, yeah it was just really fascinating to write yeah. about them
0: no I think they, they're so compelling and the, the, like you said, the minute differences between those two living spaces are so interesting too because you spend a lot of time sort of talking about what's in well, at least what's in Auntie Lowe's apartment, um, because we spend so much time there that you really get a sense of place of what it's like to live in this particular space. Yeah, yeah. so in terms of like you as a writer, um, what what is your process like? Are you someone who is constantly working on stories, a sort of put-it-all-down-in-one-chunk in, in one chunk person? Um, do you revise each sentence until it's perfect? Do you procrastinate and sort of panic write? What does that look like on a day-to-day basis for you?
1: When I write my short stories, I especially for short story form, I think, um, I generally have a first draft first, and I try not to be too bothered, you know, if it's a lousy draft. Although it's like this, you know, um, <laughs> there's this obsession in me to get it right the first time, but it's just impossible, yeah. and I have to be, you know, realistic to, to, to that, so I'll, I'll never finish a story. So I kind of see myself as like a sculptor, trying to get a rough figure out first, and then Mm. make the necessary adjustments and edits, you know, on the second and subsequent drafts. And then I think only later on I will obsess it on a sentence level, and try to get it right. And I think um, it currently kind of works for me because once I get this the plot down pat, I can kind of beautify sentence and I think that's how we get. You know the description of like the sewing machine and the description of Auntie Lowe's you know, illness and the mom's illness mm-hmm. and their their physical breakdown. Those came in through. Um, I, I mean, I required more time to, to, to kind of develop those sentences, but the the story came out first. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's and I want to talk more about those descriptions and those details too because I really do think that they're so so evocative. Uh, but before we do that, could you read us a little bit from your story, Close to Home?
1: Yeah, sure. I think I will start from the beginning because I, I just really like the way the story
0: started. Oh.
1: And I'll probably just um, do about one and a half pages. Okay, so close to Home. The year my mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, my father sent me to live with my neighbor, Auntie Lowe. He said he couldn't drive his ferry my mother to the hospital and take care of me it was only temporary until my fa- my mother finished her round of chemotherapy until things settled down it was 1998 i was 10 and i didn't want to live in a stranger's home although to be fair auntie Lo and her family were strangers we had been living next to each other in the same block of flats in Ris, the east of singapore for the past decade and had chatted a few times along the common corridor Still, I would have protested against my father's wishes, if not for the fact that my mother had become so frail, she could no longer get up from the bed. Her body, once plump and supple, was now loose and gaunt in her pyjamas. I didn't want to add to their troubles. It was perhaps also my mother's wish that I didn't witness how her illness had debilitated her. How she needed to grab the red spittoon beside the bed every few hours to throw up. Or how my father had to carry her to the bathroom for even her most basic needs. The day I left home, I noticed a small bald spot on the back of her head. At first, a circle no bigger than a 50-cent coin was now an uneven patch the size of my fist. Her eyes were red-rimmed and watery as she waved goodbye, promising that she would bring me back soon. She had begun her second cycle of treatment. Auntie Lo welcomed my father and me at the door. She lived with her husband in a two-bedroom apartment that was similar to mine in size and shape, except that it was more tidy and sparse. An empty bird cage shaped like a lantern, hung at the corner of the ceiling with its brown gate wide open. Facing a 14-inch box TV was a couch tattered at the seams. The coffee table was bare, save a clean ashtray resting on a magazine like a paperweight. Photos of their daughter lined the shelf set against the wall, and next to it, in contrast to the rest of the austere furniture, was an elaborate-looking sewing machine, one of those vintage models that came attached with a wooden table, four small drawers, a balance wheel, and a broad foot pedal clad in black and brass plating. The mix of gold swirls and flowers on the decal had faded, and some of the bolts had rested, but otherwise, the machine looked clean and polished. I spun the wheel and watched the needle bounce up and down like a finger tapping to music. Nikki, don't anyhow touch Auntie Lo's things. My father's voice boomed. I jerked and hid my hand behind my back. Oh never mind, she said, turning to me. No worry, our boy. Do what you want. Take here as your home. <clears throat> Auntie Lo was about 50 years old, with short grey curls and white set eyes that blinked rapidly behind her large plastic glasses. Her nose, shaped like a inverted strawberry was dotted with black heads even though she was short and thin she walked with a heavy foot due to her arthritis each step taken as if she were ascending a hill she wore purple cotton blouse and matching pants both printed with flowers and looking comfortable enough to slip in every time she smiled i caught a glimpse of a missing tooth at the back my father set my duffel back on the floor Besides clothes, textbooks, and comics, I didn't pack much, figuring I could simply return home to fetch anything else I needed. This was my first time living away from my parents, and I waited to see if my father had any last words for me. Catching my gaze, he cleared his throat, rubbed the back of his neck, and then said in his deep, loud voice, don't give Auntie Lo any trouble, understand? Then he left.
0: There. <laughs> God, that's so wonderful. I mean, I think... um I have my own, and we'll we'll talk about them, I have my own sort of obsessions about this story, but reading you, or I'm sorry, listening to you read it, you really get a sense of, like, what a strange experience it is for this child to be sort of given up temporarily into the care of this relative stranger and what it means to be going into her house knowing that he's going to live there for a kind of undisclosed period of time while who knows what is happening to his mother with this illness. So I think um, that 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 kind of transition is is so evocative. I have you been in a situation where you have kind of observed that type of that type of illness up close?
1: Um, cancer, no, uh, I didn't, but I lived with my paternal grandmother for a large part of my childhood and she sort of steadily grew sicker and older, mm-hmm. you know, and I've also seen her um, suffering a stroke once in our own home. Oh I think the whole idea of um an elderly, or in this case, for the boys, his mom, um you know, suffering from an illness and the body degenerating can be, to me, a very frightening affair. And I think in that in that sense, it's, it was his parents' way of protecting him to not want him to witness it. But you know, sometimes we have the best intentions, and we think that we are doing something to protect the child. But mm-hmm. you know, the, the effect and the trauma of the chi- on on the child, nonetheless, even though he's uh, at a distance, is still there. And that I think that is what I was trying to explore in this story. You know, it's about this child's trauma and how he tries to deal with his emotions. And you know, um, you know, who are who are actually people that he can confide to? You know, actually not many in this story. And yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, he seems quite isolated in a lot of ways, um, at least as we see him in this story. And it, you know, this, this impulse to protect your child from this type of information and from seeing a potential degeneration of especially your mother is also a kind of a, a, a shielding that I think can cause its own trauma when you don't as a, as a child particularly when you don't know what's going on. Um,
1: exactly. And you know, children, they see everything. So mm-hmm. I think that was what I really liked when I was writing a story that I had to go into his head and think, what, what exactly would he observe, you know, even though his parents are trying to hide it from him in that sense. I mean, he still has to talk to his mother sometimes and, you know, when he watches her, what about her, does he uh, take note, you know, which parts of her actually affected him the most and, um. Yeah. Yeah. So. So. And. I guess it was interesting that I chose um the boy to be or rather I wrote him as a ten year old because I feel like he's neither really young where he can be like crying all day because his mom is and he's not really old like a sixteen seventeen year old he's kind of in between and I think that sort of also makes him a bit harder to open up to anyone because you are you are neither here or there you know in terms yeah. of your maturity level.
0: mm-, mm-hmm. Yeah. No. I think that I I I think that comes through because. It, we as we as readers, because you've done this in a sort of first person from his his point of view, we're put inside of his own head, and so we get these really lovely details of what he notices. But there are, there are these broad swaths of things that we don't know because he doesn't know them either. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think it kind of starting with this idea of. Of kind of illness and and bodies that are ill in some way. I mean, there are there are a lot of very visceral bodies in this story. Um you know, you have talked about, and it came out in in your reading that Nikki's mother is, of course, battling with cancer. She's losing her hair. She's losing weight. Her son is observing her to the extent that he can. But at various points in the story, um Auntie Lowe is also, you know, increasingly, aging, she's arthritic, um, she starts to go kind of downhill quite rapidly towards the end of the story. Um, And then her daughter is pregnant and loses her baby. So we have a lot of these bodies that have something um, kind of missing, right? Or something being taken from them in some way. Is anyone whole in this story?
1: I think maybe Nikki's dead. It's pretty <laughs> the most whole of all yeah <laughs> but you know I feel like unlike um, you know unlike objects like I feel like our bodies feel so much more vulnerable and transient you know and you're right you know in the sense that this story can see many different bodies going into disrepair I think I like write stories that meditate on this vulnerability and transient quality that I just spoke about you know and it's like Mirrors life in general, I think. You know, sickness and old age and death play a big role in them. And maybe it's a little bit of my own fear of yeah. losing control of my own body eventually,
0: yeah. you
1: know, through illness or death, that, you know, a bit of that worked itself, you know, worked its way into my characters. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, and that's interesting. And it is... The extent to which different characters are sort of taking care of each other at different times is interesting as well. I mean, we see you mentioned Nikki's father is maybe the only certainly physically whole character, um, in the story. And he is, of course, taking care of, of Nikki's mom to to the extent that taking care of Nikki as well is is too difficult in that moment. Um but then of course we have Auntie Lowe very explicitly taking care of, of Nikki in that absence. Um and Auntie Lo then also sort of taking care of her daughter, but at the same time Nikki is taking care of Auntie Lo especially increasingly through the story right?
1: Yes, exactly and you know I think I think this story also talks a little bit about boundaries you know, how sometimes you know, we we give ourselves as much as we allow ourselves to and you're right, totally right, you know, the father saw or rather, like you said this story was the point of view of the boy and from his point of view he saw that his Father, the father said he it feels like almost like he's a burden to the family at the point in time where the family is going through a crisis and he needs to step away. You know it may mm-hmm. it may feel like there's something really unfair to us of a child, but you know it's almost like in this story everyone is doing the best that they could. The father is doing the best he could. The mom is doing the best he could. Auntie Lo even though it's an economic transaction, she's actually providing Nikki more than more support emotionally and physically than. Um, that what is expected of her almost you know how when the dad, you know even as the smallest gesture when the father bought the wrong size clothes for nikki and she just <laughs> rectified that immediately you know with the skills that she had as a as a seamstress, that know. was one
0: of the sweetest it, scenes to me is that she took these clothes and said no it's gonna be we're gonna make it fine it will be okay <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly. So I think you know it's a bit of like how boundaries are drawn, but also boundaries can be really great and, and 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 they can be they can extend and distend, You know, at certain points, and, you know, towards the end, you see her shutting down. You know, she could no longer care for Nikki the same way because she herself is going through a crisis. And mm-hmm. you know, it's I think that, and then that is, that is where his father came in to take him back almost. And so I think you know boundaries and taking care of people that is really is 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 really in a sense flexible you know and and that is why I think like there is no um, real antagonist in the story in that sense because everyone to me is it's just doing the best they can in the situation they have, and sometimes they can give more, and sometimes they cannot give any more.
0: Yeah, and you see that kind of flexibility where people both have the need to be taken care of, but they also, in different places, need to take care of someone else. Like that is what they need at that moment is to be responsible for someone, um, to give them something else to focus on, really.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Even the mom, you know, in, in her her weak state and in her limitations, she still tries to talk to Nikki and mm-hmm. tries to connect with him. And you know, even in the daily conversations that are, and you, you can see her struggling to even stay awake <clears throat> when she's conversing with him. But it's her little way of trying to set somehow normality in his life, you know, and being a mom. So, to me, I mean, personally, I felt like his interactions with his mom touched me the most mm-hmm. because I feel like, again, you know, these people are trying so hard. You know, Nikki is trying so hard as well to make um, make his mom happy in that sense, you know, to, to, to establish a sense of normalcy, you know, in a, in a very really difficult time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you absolutely, absolutely get the sense of all of these people just trying to do the day by day, and and as you say, doing the best, doing the best they can um, in this situation. I wanna switch gears a little bit because, full disclosure, one of the reasons that I was so tickled to be able to talk with you about this story is that um, it came up in the section that you read, there's a really beautiful and lovely description of the sewing machine in Auntie Lowe's apartment, Um, And she does a lot of kind of seamstress work, um, tailoring, things like the alterations, things like that. And a lot of my dissertation work is specifically engaged with sewing and textile work when we see it crop up in literature. Um, And so this story has a fair amount of it, both by machine and by hand. Um, Do you have a personal connection with sewing?
1: Well, I actually did a bit of like sewing and embroidery work when I was really young, like sort of just a hobby, mm-hmm. nothing serious at all. And when I was a student, you know, as part of our compulsory home economics thing, <laughs> I, I actually had to, you know, like <laughs> learn to sew a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. <clears throat> but on a personal uh, sense, um, I actually see sewing uh, in the in Auntie Lo's way like a professional uh, sort of job, mm-hmm. a kind of like a dying trade in Singapore. Like you really don't really see young people doing it anymore. And my own personal experience is that when I was a kid, um, my my maternal grandmother actually had a sewing machine at her own home. And I think part of this whole inspiration of describing the sewing machine you know, that is is from my own memories of going to her house and seeing this object in the middle of the room, like what is this? And you know, all I was really young like mm-hmm. you know and, and it was really old but it was sort of like vintage you know and uh, I still remember there was one time where I had to do this assignment in school and and I had to make like a letter holder or something (laughs) and I had to get her to help me I was like I don't know how to make the pocket you know and Mm -hmm. she did but in that sense um, the story or at least the parts about the sewing machine at Auntie Lowe is a bit of homage to her because in a sense, it was my first uh, experience in you know, of a, of an elderly sewing and kind of having a, a craft, you know, with with it, yeah. And I think this this explains why um the story Ati Lo was sort of lamenting, right? Like nowadays, nobody really wants to have a, a like uh, wants her to tailor the clothes. Even if they do, I think like now in the in the in our year like twenty eighteen, like when people look for tailors. It's a little bit of a more sophisticated affair, I think. Not so much that like you go to someone's house and get this old lady to make your measurements and make clothes for you. Not, not really so much that way anymore. So, in a sense, it's almost like, you know, Aunt Tilo is old and she's sort of expiring, and her trade is expiring, and her skills and craft, everything is kind of like, you know, she's sort of like, well, it's, the, the sewing machine and the craft is, is a, it's almost like a metaphor of her and her life as well. You know, her her usefulness,
0: you know, is coming to an end. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean that makes sense. I you have um a line in the story kind of about essentially fast fashion taking over what would have been a very robust trade in what she in what she does, in this tailoring and alteration, um and maybe mending potentially kind of kind of trade. Um and it does seem that she you have written her of a piece with that with that craft, as you say, and so their fortunes kind of wax and wane with each other um, as this story goes on. But of course, there is there is at least a moment where she is supremely useful, as we said, when when she takes the ill-fitting clothes that Nikki's father buys him. Um, to actually make them appropriate for the size that he is now. Um, and so she has this kind of last, yeah. last gasp in the story um, in that craft, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes,
1: yes, exactly. And it's, it's interesting because as we see her craft kind of expiring in the in, in the modern world we see the value in it as well as she means nikki's clothes and, you know when she makes the baby pillow as a show of affection and especially love for the unborn child you know and it's like how she still can be useful you know in her own way although well she did not get a happy ending at the end but yeah
0: right but but the i think the process of making that sort of baby pillow for um her grandchild w- was it kind of was a genera generative process for her um, and you, you see that when it's kind of the one thing that she saves from this um, tragic event at the end I know we were gonna do spoilers I don't know <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know how far I'm willing to go with that but in the in the tragic event um, she t- she takes the baby pillow pillow that she has made with her which yes. you know I think is um, is extraordinary
1: yeah, I mean, you know, it's about how I guess it's also a way of saying how even if the world doesn't value a particular craft, there's still a lot of sentimental value to it. Mm-hmm. You know, that is, that is, again, it's about like you know, a, a little bit of how not everything is just an economic transaction. You see, uh, and we see that in her life as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and so and and this sort of creation and continued creation of family. Um, one of the ways that she does that is through crafting these articles of sentimental value.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So I know that you have a time limit on today, so I do want to talk about, <laughs> right? I, I, I know, I know, I'm watching the clock. Um, but I do, want to, I do want to talk a little bit about um, your new book that's out, The Gods Will Hear Us Eventually. So tell, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Um, yes, yeah, so this is my debut novel, and it was recently launched at the Singapore Writers Festival last month, and it's about very quickly it's about the breakdown of a Singaporean family after one of their daughters goes missing. And like a little bit like close to home, it was uh, it's being told in the perspective of a child who's seven years old and her mom, you know how how they try to cope and grapple with the loss and yeah, and, and the kind of things that happen along the way. And it's a story about hope. Um, and it's a story about uh, love, you know, and redemption in that
0: sense. Yeah. I am so excited to read it. Um, I am going to order it immediately. Yay! Yes, <laughs> um, that might be my sort of winter winter break book. I am I am very excited about it. Um, partially because I th- I think it sounds lovely, but I also As I've said a couple of times um, throughout our conversation, I love this short story so much. So you have written a lot of short fiction, and this is your debut novel. So in terms of writing, do you prefer novels or short fiction?
1: (laughs) It's like such a difficult question. (laughs) it's strange, but I think when I was writing my novel, I preferred the novel, and now that I'm putting together a short story collection, I prefer the short story form. Like, well, I, it's
0: better that yeah, than the I other don't... way around, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's so much, you know, for in both genres of or forms, and um, yeah, uh, both of them are. Are great. Uh, at the moment, like I'm, uh, like I said, I'm actually working on a short story collection based in Singapore. So I've actually been reading a lot, um, like O. Henry collections, you know, um, yeah, and American uh best short story collection, or even um various anthologies from uh, from different writers, you know, just to get a sense of, you know, just to be inspired and to learn, you know, and constantly lear- constantly learning from all these great writers out there. Yeah, so at
0: the moment it's short stories for me. Okay. I I love the norm. (laughs) We'll check back in if that has changed um, at the end of this project. So Okay, so I have one last question because I think we have a couple more minutes, and this is kind of a personal obsession of mine, is can you describe your normal writing space for us?
1: Oh, it's terrible. (laughs) So you know, full disclosure, you know, I have two kids. One of them is four years old, and one of them is one and a half years old. And my house is a complete mess. And you know, in Singapore, a lot of us live in, in small houses with little rooms. So I don't actually really have like a, a room of my own to write. You know, like how do well Virginia Woolf said like you know, every every woman should have a room of one? Or so like I'm like that's such a luxury. I, I don't have that. So I actually write. I write anywhere, everywhere, I write on my sofa, I write on a, a little space I can find in the study, I, 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 yeah, sometimes I write on my phone when I'm nursing my kid, you know, like, anywhere, everywhere, yeah. You are, <laughs>
0: like, you are hardcore, that is <laughs> how I yeah, think we all like, actually you know, write, but would not tell other people that we write.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I still remember when I was working on, um, like these short stories, uh, that I had, including this one that appeared in the Carolina Quarterly. I often went to the cafe to do it. You know, back then I only had one one kid and. And so uh, my, my husband would help me babysit her. I just need like one hour. Just let me go to the Starbucks <laughs> and then I'll just churn everything out. You know, And, and so, yeah, it, it's like what they say, like necessity is the mother of all, I don't know, creativity or something, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it just had to work with what we have, you know. Yeah, maybe in the future, I hope I have like a little space where I can always sit down and do. But yeah, at, at the moment, my writing space is um, anywhere with a laptop. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I think we can all... Um, identify with that. Um, That sounds very real. Jenny, it has been (laughs) such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, This evening for me, morning for you. Um, I know that you have to go, but I so appreciate, I so appreciate your time.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun, like, you know, dissecting the story and, you know, knowing which parts moved you or made you (laughs) laugh. It's great. I I mean, yeah, it's been a really fun and I really appreciate you getting me on this podcast you know I hope that this is not the end I would love to hear your thoughts about my book once you finish reading it maybe know.
0: we can do it again in the new year <laughs>
1: yeah, maybe yeah so thank you so much yeah you know. and thank-, thank you for publishing the short story as well really,
0: oh it was a delight week. I had nothing to do with the choosing of it but I was so pleased to see it when it happened that's great to hear <laughs> Next up, fiction editors Matt and Paul deep dive about approaches to print versus online publishing.
2: Hi everybody, I'm Paul Blom. And I am Matt Duncan. And we are the two fiction editors for the Carolina Quarterly Lit Magazine. We are sitting here today in the CQ office um, having a conversation about the different types of uh, media in which we here at the CQ publish our fiction.
3: So I, I think it's important to begin just by enumerating uh, the ways that we publish fiction here. Um, First, we have our flash fiction, uh, which has us looking for shorter stories, um, stories that can be kind of quick hits, satisfying literary encounters. Um, We have our online fiction. Uh, We take one story a month and we publish it on our website. And then, of course, we have our print issue, uh,
2: which comes out quarterly. So we thought it would be useful just to sit back and think about our different approaches for looking at these different pieces. Um, our, our flash fiction, maybe we should start there since it's kind of new. Um, we've, In general, in the past, I think we've rarely published flash fiction, um, and we've recently started kind of incorporating it into the website. Um, Matt, what are your thoughts regarding like your approach to looking for flash fiction? We've incorporated it on the website and also done readings on the podcast. What do you think of, or how do you approach that? So I would say
3: that for any online publication, you live and die on how much you can update your content. Uh, and we have, of course, a lot of content coming out uh, of the fiction arm of CQ. We have our story every month, and then we uh, have uh, four or five stories contributed every issue. But the Flash Fiction gives us an opportunity to refresh our content uh, at a more regular interval, and it also gives us an opportunity to take full advantage of web media as publishing outlet. Um, when I look for flash fiction, uh, I keep that in mind. I keep in mind that we want our readers to have a wealth of content uh, at any given moment, um, you know, something to hold them over between issues, between monthly publications. Um, and so I, I look for those stories that are, they're pithy, they're punchy, um, they're consumable in that environment.
2: Yeah, I would definitely agree. Um, and and my approach to to kind of flash fiction is. In those especially I'm looking for, or at least open to, stuff that really surprises me. Material that really takes advantage of the short um, the short form uh, itself and and knocks me off guard or is willing to, to be a little risky, I guess. Just in
3: general, I would speak to the benefit of surprise. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I really love to read something that I don't expect. Uh, in particular, I love to get something from a perspective I hadn't considered and flash fiction, uh, I think, is a great medium for that, because you're looking at a short amount of space, textually speaking, um, but in that space, you can really deliver a, a compact world, um, and people sincerely surprise you in terms of what they're able to do. With it.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it's it's where the economy of words really comes through too. Where you know, you someone can't waste. I can't write flash fiction. I am not brief, that's my problem with writing and probably with talking, is uh, I say way too much and um, yeah, so every word has to count and in, in a way serve multiple purposes. So, yeah.
3: Many of us that work in and around literature have a big word habit. <laughs> I certainly do. Uh, in in both my teaching and in print uh, I am trying to be a little bit more brief. Um, and I think uh, I, I definitely admire and respect the authors of our Flash, our flash machine, uh, because they've been able to turn that into an advantage. Whereas for me, it feels like a limitation. Yeah. Something I'm training myself
2: to do. Right. Well, kudos to that. We will both uh, attempt that goal of uh, achieving better brevity. And... Tw- 20,
3: 2019, you heard it here first. <laughs> our, our resolution.
2: There you go. Yeah. Uh-huh.
3: Don't don't bloviate
2: so I guess we can shift to, and you kind of already we kind of already talking about in a way just the online fiction in general. Um, again, we tend to we tend to post one new story every month, um, and then sometimes, like you said, we'll supplement that slide in a flash fiction piece as well. Um, but we'll tend to post a, a longer piece every month. Um, I know for me, and you kind of touched on this, is is thinking about timeliness. Um, these are pieces that a lot of times I'll look for things that. Because we can get them out and publish pretty rapidly, um, I'm interested in, if I see a piece that I know we want to publish and it's a good fit for us, but if it's something that is on a topic that's especially timely, where I have the reaction that I want to be able to get this out next month or in the next couple months, rather than waiting for the long, longer printing process, um, that's one of the things that a lot of times will catch my, um, my attention. What about? Absolutely.
3: Uh, as an editor and as a reader, Online fiction, I'm looking to fall in love. Uh, and I'm looking to fall in love quick. Uh, this is not only because uh, publishing online fiction happens at a more regular interval, so you have less time to really step back and look at a range of stories you're considering, um, but also because of the way that our webpage is designed. Uh, our, our monthly fiction, online publication fiction, uh, provides a, a blur of a selection um, to draw readers in. It's, there's an advertisement. Uh, And I look for stories for online publication that have that sound bite, for lack of a better way of putting it. They have that moment where you're just sucked in, like you want to click, you want to read. And and I think that that's uh, that's something that's unique to to the flash fiction, um, to the online fiction from the pre-issue, and their strengths to both approaches. Uh, But you really are trying to work with the design of web media. Um, and That presents its own profile for stories, uh, and I would say too for people that are hoping to get published, don't think the only way to get something <laughs> past us is, oh, well, I, you know, I got to get these these people to fall in love with my story. You know, they're not going to invest any time in it. Not true at all. Um, we're always carefully considering and reconsidering stories. I can't tell you how many times you know I've taken something that I didn't like and rehabbed it. You know, just you know, give it another chance. Um, but the online fiction, uh, I think, really does have to appeal to that basic sense of curiosity. You have to want to know more right away. So those are the kinds of stories that tend to find their right way to
2: publication,
3: at least for mine.
2: Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Yeah, like thinking about the construction of the website, um, even just the nature of, of our online readership, like being aware of the fact that the readers who are viewing this are on a tablet or laptop or phone, and it's just like any other website where you've got to engage them quickly, um, and you've got to keep them reading because there are a million other notifications and links and possible things that they could be reading on their bus ride or however they're consuming.
3: Literature is a rough market. Yeah, <laughs> we we have lots of competition, but I also think that uh, short fiction has maintained its appeal uh, as as genre, um, and I feel that the stories we've published uh, over the past six months or so online, it really reflected uh, the the power of that genre. Um, Yeah,
2: Yeah, and that, thinking about the website made me think maybe we should have even started, we should mention (laughs) kind of our backgrounds. I think your backgrounds and interests um, are especially uh, relevant in terms of this conversation or even our contrasting interests, I guess, so um, if maybe you want to, We should pause and you can share your uh, background and interest for the readers who don't know.
3: Oh, sure. Um, So, I am a second-year grad student, PhD candidate at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, I study digital rhetoric, uh, which means that I am interested in how digital communication technology uh, shapes arguments and forms uh, a culture of meaning. I like working with the online fiction because I like to think of the rhetorical and political factors shaping my decisions as an editor uh, and also uh, governing the experience of our readers. Thinking about my audience, as Paul mentioned, uh, is pretty important in the study of rhetoric. Um, I'm also very much interested in teaching. The primary uh, focus of my research is um, how these digital technologies can shift the way we teach writing uh, in a traditional university classroom um, how they change the classroom. Uh, And editing work, I think, uh, gets me thinking about the ways in which uh, things like Submittable uh, and things like our own web page are governing my expectations uh, of the fiction that I'm taking in. Um, And they also have me thinking about uh, how being an editor is so much different uh, from being an instructor grading papers, you know, and trying to prepare something for publication as opposed to revise it for a pedagogical situation. Um, and so, yeah, I, uh, I'm i very interested in how the media impacts the message. All will have the clue in. So.
2: Yeah, no, and real quick to clarify, Submittable is our, I guess, portal for people to submit their pieces to us. Is that it? There's probably a better way to say that. But. I thought
3: that was very succinct.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but no, and it is fascinating. Um, even though I'm not, like, researching or I'm not in... I'm interested in that area, just not in an official capacity. Um, so, uh, but it is interesting how the medium affects the message. Or even, like you said, how it even shapes our approach as editors, just getting it through that portal. Um I'll well, start right the clock, but No,
3: I... You know, it's funny because I, I talk about submittable, I talk about digital publication, but you know, we still accept paper submissions here at Carolina Quarterly. Um, you know, we, we get a fresh batch of them in the mail. Yeah. Uh, you know, pretty much every week, and uh, it's funny how obtuse they can seem sometimes, because we're so used to the streamlined experience of putting through stories on submittable. But there's also something to be said for the material difference of holding a story in your hand. And experiencing the paper, you know, looking at the words. Uh, sometimes people send in, uh, you know, stuff on, like, typeset, from like, typewriters. Yeah. Um, not even word processors or contemporary printing. Um,
2: I've seen handwritten. I've gotten yeah, handwritten stuff.
3: We, we get handwritten stuff sometimes. Um, so there's there's a lot of technologies at work. There's a lot of technologies of literacy and of writing that uh, intersect in this publication. Um, but I would say the lion's share of the stuff we look at, and again, it's just an importance of the technology, because it allows us to, to look at so many things so quickly. It's
2: yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. Um, and I do want to, yeah, it's thinking about the paper copies, like the hard copies that we get mailed in just since you brought it up. It is interesting. Um, it's definitely a minority. There is some, and we, we look at those just as thoroughly. Um, it There's something interesting with some of the really powerful stories we get. Um, about holding the actual, the same paper that the writer was interacting with. Um, Especially, like, some of the handwritten works that I've gotten that... I look at the cover letter after the fact. I don't want to be influenced by it. Um, But when I go back and look at the cover letter and I find out this story is somewhat autobiographical, um, and I'm holding the paper that this person who was sharing or constructing these really, like, intense events or emotions, it's a it's an interesting connection. I like getting away from the screen a little bit. Um, I'm I'm a bit more old school. I still print out, out all my articles that I read for classes. So I'm sorry to the trees. I'm not. I'm trying to be more eco friendly. Um, but so we've got an interesting contrast, I think, a bit in terms of sometimes uh, approaches. Although I think our I think generally what we're looking for in stories tends to be pretty similar, even if sometimes our tastes are slightly. We're going to have
3: a sincere disagreement here because uh, if i'm doing reading or research for a scholarly project through uh, articles i need my copy and paste for passages um i do take paper notes though uh, but yeah um that is a very good point about the cover letter uh because again just thinking about the importance of the technology when you click on a story uh to read on submittable um, you kind of get the cover, for the cover letter automatically. Yeah. Very difficult to avoid. Yeah. Um, you have to scroll past it to get the attachment. So, uh, you do have, I would say, maybe a little bit more choice you know, looking at a paper story. Yeah.
2: Do you tend to look at the cover letter first, or hold off, or is it kind of just? Yeah. It just gets into my periphery. Yeah.
3: Um, I will say though that uh, there's very little that will override uh, my primary instinct. Um, yeah. In selecting a story, uh, you know the, the criteria I use. They're not ironclad or anything, um, but I would say that uh, good fiction, um, or you know, fiction that I think is interesting to publish, you know, that, that really has something to say, uh, can certainly be biographical.
2: Yeah, you know,
3: there, there's there's no excluding that. Um, I think sometimes uh, people let their perspectives over determine their writing, um, and that sometimes it can come out, you know, a, a little more reflective um, and a little less projective. Yeah. Um, that didn't make any sense. That was nonsense, but...
2: <laughs> I think I got what you're saying, Yeah, feel free to clear.
3: Paul understood. <laughs> um, and, you know, we're the only people listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, I guess what I mean to say is uh, when when you compose fiction, you really want to uh, hand something out that people can't get otherwise.
0: Uh, yeah. When
3: you write reflectively, um, you know, you're really writing for yourself, yeah. which, you know, nothing wrong with that. Uh, but I feel like you have to consider your audience. Um, and those stories that you know, that have that autobiographical element, um, but also uh, manage to bring that stuff out into the world, are particularly impressive.
2: Yeah, I'd agree. Go Reflection's great, it's useful, it's powerful, but if to turn that into good fiction, go a step beyond. Um, reflection can even be useful in terms of then moving on to, all right, what is the core of this narrative I want to share? Yeah, um, so thinking about our online fiction, thinking about our our print issues, we are a quarterly journal. although the technically, we need to be fully honest and transparent. So we right now we really have two issues a year. We've got our uh, what is it, spring summer issue, and then our, our fall winter issue. Um, and in each in each print issue, we'll usually print. I'd say the the, the ideal is what five stories in a print issue. Yeah, um,
3: that that makes sense to me. It uh, sense you know we're quarterly, air quotes, um, or in a practical sense, putting out two issues a year. That's about a piece mm-hmm. a month um, if you average it out. Uh, and so, I think uh, in working with a print issue, um, there's really just a a luxury of time uh, and uh, an embarrassment of riches in terms of what we can publish. Yeah, because um, we're just getting dozens of stories a week, you know, at, at a clip. And uh, I would say, a, you know, in a typical reading session, if I get through thirty stories, you know, probably five of them are publishable to me. And so, when we're considering stories for the print issue, you know, we get to, we get to do this. We get to you know, take off those five stories and you know, maybe just put them all in a pile and just go through the pile, like, what's the best of the best? And um, we can even, you know, we can hold off stories for online or we can consider them for flash fiction. We have so many options. Um, I feel like the print issue then acts as this, like, super category, which the other categories can't can in Because when I'm reading, I'm often thinking about reading for the print yeah. issue. Uh, you know what? What do I want to swirl away? You know, what, right? You know what? What special story do I think really would look good in each? Um, I think a lot of that has to do with again the, the, the sort of uh, affordances—the artifact of the of the print, you know, the book, right? You know, I'm, I'm thinking about enshrining fiction uh, in an issue, and so I really want to, you know, I really want to you know, be careful. Um, you know, but I also uh, I want to take my time.
2: Yeah, I mean it is. Thinking about the, the relationship between the website fiction and the print fiction, I mean, even enshrining it, uh, I'm pretty sure that a copy of our issue gets sent to one of the libraries or the archives here. Um, we have, we're here in the CQ office, we have, you know, all of the past issues that are saved. Um, uh, yeah, there's something, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking even of studies I've read that, you um, supposedly readers are more likely to be empathetic with characters if they are physically interacting with the text versus reading it online, um, or taking and and more likely to remember or engage material if they're physically interacting with it. Um, And then, you know, then there's the money thing, too. I mean, we got to get there. Um, You know, our our online issue is basically free for us to create the online, the website, Um, so the only investment in us publishing An online story is our time and effort um, and we can get it published relatively quickly and it exists in this infinite digital space and um, other than that the only other consideration is just maintaining standards giving readers something new and exciting um, support to a a writer um, and also as I think we we've had conversations about also Diversity of content, perspectives, um, and and of the writers themselves. Whereas with the print issue, yeah, it's um, it's all paid subscriptions. Um, you can subscribe on our website. Um, a yeah, quick quick plug for our subscribers. You're yeah. amazing. Thank you. Yeah, indeed. Good call. Yes. Yeah, we love you. Um, but it's a considerable investment in terms of the time it takes to do the layout, the formatting, the printing, um, even just the mailing, um, and it's an investment on the part of our subscribers. So. I think there's an interesting there's an interesting relationship there in terms of investment versus audience. Um, I've been thinking about. It. I know we were talking about it a bit earlier. Well, all right, before I before I shift it over to you, one thing I was thinking when you talk, um, if we publish <laughs> basically one story a on month online, that's twelve stories in a year, and we publish about five stories per issue. That's ten stories per year. So roughly, we're going to publish about twenty-two stories in a year and yeah we get a, probably a couple story submissions every day so we're getting over what's that like 730 750 submissions in a year so just so you know for people who are writing and submitting yeah out of about roughly 750 submissions 22 approximately will get published um i don't know what that math is um but we do have a wealth of riches and so we do really get to choose not just the best of the best, um, because there's tons that I think we love that we just don't have room for. Um, but also, it's about merit, or standards of writing and surprise, and also just fit, I think, for us. I've read some pieces that I really liked or found interesting, but I thought this either isn't the right time to publish this, or we are not the right venue to publish this.
3: Yeah, that that's really important to mention um, because. You know, not taking a story means not taking it for CQ. It's not a pronouncement. <laughs> we, we do not operate by decree. Yeah. Um, and and I think that if you get a rejection from us uh, and you really believe in your story, um, you know, you should keep pushing. Um, but I would say Paul is right that uh, there are certain uh, trends in the publication you know, that that we follow. Um, you know because we have to consider the format of any publication uh, because of the number of stories that we can put out um, you know this is a it's a literary magazine but it does not necessarily have a binding theme um, so if you have a piece that's you know, deep in a particular set of genre conventions you know if you have something that's deeply science fiction it's uh, really touching on certain you know, popular culture uh, notes um, you know, it, it might not be for us, but I, you know, by no means would, would I think that that was not right. Um, and so, yeah, we, we have to think about that. Um, you know, I also would say that uh, in terms of looking for unique perspectives, um, maybe it would be useful to clarify you know, what we mean by that. Yeah, sure. Um, because I would say that uh, you know, there, there are a lot of common places in short fiction, uh, the kinds of stories people tend to feel comfortable telling in that format. Um, so when I say in a common perspective, I, I look for uh, you know, little vignettes or you know, dramatic moments that I wouldn't necessarily be expected to, to read in a short story. Um, you know, I also, I, I think it's necessary to say um, that there are just certain subjects that get taken up over and over again in yeah. short fiction. Um, and I think if you've got uh, a unique way of looking at you know, relationships you know, between people, romantic relationships, you know, if you've got a way of, of writing about that that I haven't heard before, I'm very interested. Because at this point, I feel like I've heard it all yeah. about relationships. People really want to write about their relationships. Their breakups, their yeah. heartbreak. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah Those um, narratives are super common. I mean, if you don't believe me, just go on your Facebook feed um, <laughs> and, and have a look. Uh, go on Reddit. <laughs> Uh, that that stuff is, I mean, it, it's really, it's poignant for a lot of people. Um, it's a big part of the human experience, but, you know, as a result, it's also common in submissions. So, when I say a new perspective, you know, I'm looking for a way to tell that story that I haven't necessarily seen
2: before. Yeah, I definitely agree. Again, like you said, I mean, I'm glad you emphasized that. We are a literary magazine. So, yeah, those stories can be important and emotional on an individual level or even a communal level within your social group, but it might not yet be the best literary piece. Um, um, Yeah, so common things will get uh, relationship stories. Um, Writers love writing about writers, and um, that's not surprising anymore um, or all that interesting. It can be. Again, with all of these, you may have a unique, writers may have a unique way of approaching it. Um, Not so much unique or different or shocking or surprising just for the sake of it, Um, but something that brings forth new insights and isn't just the same old story that I know where it's going, I know what revelation this character is going to have. Um, I know I can pretty much know what personality traits this character is going to have. Um, I'm trying to think of others that uh, I've seen a lot of. I I will, um, in in addition to writers writing about writers, also just stories of angry young men, Mm -hmm. angry against the world, or angry against society, or feeling like they're um, born in the wrong era, um, I think uh, I get a lot of those that aren't quite there yet in terms of offering some new insight. Um.
3: No. You know, I, I think some of the best advice you can give a writer is right what you know, um, but I think uh, a lot of people are still on the surface in terms of their experience, and the fiction that they produce can reflect that. I also would say that we could have a knockdown, dragout drag-out fight over what's considered literary, um, and I will also say that uh, we're not snobs, <laughs> even though maybe it sounds like oh, these guys. You're right. We we'll probably do something. They're different. just yeah. They're they're so highbrow. They can't. You know, they can't even consider fiction it's not literary, whatever that means. Um, but it's it's not that there is uh, an aesthetic standard of decorum in fiction. It's not that. Uh, it's that the content has been deeply considered, contemplated, and that that contemplation is reflected in the product that we give. Um, and, you know, it's important to mention, Paul and I, we're a couple of white guys. Yeah. Um, and we're in a very Yeah, we're in a very privileged position. You know, uh, in this university, we have privileged access to knowledge, we have uh, privileged access to technology and literacy. Um, and so, when I look for fiction, I am applying my own advice about what it means to offer a new perspective in choosing stories. I'm yep. looking to step out of myself, I'm looking to deeply contemplate and consider the experience of selecting fiction for the publication. And when I pick a story, it's because it's something that I understand, but at the same time I don't. Uh, it's something that, that is outside of me. Uh, and, and that's what I mean by a new perspective.
2: I'm really glad you said that, and I think you, you, that was very well put, and I would agree wholeheartedly. Well yeah. Um, so I guess we could shift uh, yeah. into thinking about—we started thinking about, or I started mentioning the print issue. And then kind of, I got us off track, but um, that's what happens when a couple of dudes just start talking about stories. So, yeah, um, so in thinking about either being invested in print versus web or just in terms of, I guess, scenarios, there's always interesting things that happen with with some of these stories. Um, And my mind is blanking right now, but I'm thinking, you know, yeah, what, like, what we've all got experiences where we're looking at a story and it's like, we're blown away or laughing, um, yes. either out of the content or out of how ridiculous something is, and sometimes it can even win us over. Um, yeah. So uh, I,
3: I've got one in mind, um, just right away. Uh, it was our, uh, our online story for December, uh, author's name is uh, Sharon Barrett, um, Sharon was great to work with, uh, shout out to her. Um, and uh, her story is called The Cryer. And when I first picked up the story, uh, I was struggling a little bit through the first page, but I got down to the top of the second page. And you know, a lot of times uh, it's it's good to figure out whether or not, for an online story, the first page is really going to capture you and make you fall in love for those reasons we talked about earlier. Um, I got to the top of the, se- the second page, and I read the sentence quote, "The Virgin Mary never had to deal with leaking nipples." Um, and <laughs> I was like, I have to print this, right? I absolutely have to, whatever it takes, I have to, I have to publish this. Um, and, and the story, uh, by the way, check it out, uh, you know, at the CQ website, um, it's called The Cry Room, Sharon Barrett, it's a fantastic story, um, and it really takes you through a particular dimension of uh, the politics of gender relations in the church, um, and uh, it's a fascinating perspective. Um, and it's also kind of funny in that way, um, but I would say that uh, yeah, that that was a moment when when I was just like, yeah, fault of lightning. This is this is hitting publication yeah. because it, it was just it was it was over first sight.
2: Yeah, no, there's definitely those pieces. Either the title you're just like, what in the world is this? I have to read this right now. You know, we're scrolling through the list of stories that we've been submitted, um, or yeah, there's a line somewhere in there or a phrase that just kind of. That just strikes you, um, and a lot of times it's something really quirky. Not to say we only publish quirky stuff, but um, you know, again, thinking about the reality of our position, um, we are you know, two editors working together with a small series, a, a small group of volunteer readers who will read and kind of give us um, uh, brief feedback or push, help you know, prioritize certain stories um, for us to then you know to bring to our attention. But yeah, with those, with so many stories, it is um, something has to jump out of us to really grab our attention. I know um, I'm thinking of even the, the fiction contest, uh, which was what in our fall winter issue. Um, I know we each kind of um, we're working on editing some of the stories. The um, looking back on it, well, I guess because the theme the winter the winter story was about basically about Bigfoot. Um, there was a story about eating cheese to save the world. Uh, granted, I guess that was, again, the, the issue was being thematized that way, but um, on the opposite side of that, I've had stories where pretty much from the first paragraph, I could tell you everything I needed to know about the character. Yep. <laughs> I could tell that character was a trope, and not intentionally so. They weren't subverting anything. It was just kind of a stock character, and every new insight or revelation that character had. I could have told you it was coming, um, and after, you know, 20 pages of basically something I, I could tell you in, in page one. Um, those are always interesting experiences. And again, I try to encourage those writers, you know, to go back, um, reflect on the writing, and and revise it, and really try to do something that I think will surprise themselves and surprise me. But.
3: Yeah. And, and that's a tough position to be in, right, because um, we're like, you know, entertain us. Right. You know, but, when we say entertain us, really we mean entertain our readers, exactly. because they they deserve it, um, and and we we have to put our best foot forward. Uh, you know, it's it's tough though. If everyone starts writing great stories, we'll never get to them all, right? Um, and I think it's really hard to know when you're in that position where your writing is is, is on the surface. So, um, you know, to to get past that point, or you know, if if you suspect you are writing on the surface, I think the first thing to do is just to continue to practice your. Um, You know, not not just for fiction, um, all different uh, areas, genres of writing, uh, practice is great. Um, Even if you don't necessarily get any better, you learn a lot about yourself writing, uh, and writing often. Uh, And and that can help you, really. Um, And and I would say that, like, if your life uh, appears to you as a well-worn trope, uh, and you're writing what you know, and you you feel like your life is boring, um, look again. Because I feel like a lot of times people don't carefully consider their surroundings. They don't consider the conditions of their existence. Maybe you know, maybe for good reason. You don't want to unzip that sometimes. Um, but it can be a good idea, you know, to take a second look, you know, outside and inside. Um, and writing is uh, one of the best mirrors available. You know, it's it's a way to pour things out and and to see them in a way that you can't necessarily if you're through.
2: And it also, it does take guts. I, I do want to say, you know, uh, everyone who submits to us, um, in fiction and in the other genres that our other editors are looking at, you know, kudos to you. It takes guts to to put something down on the page and send it out and, and to get it out there and, and look for feedback. Um, uh, and it's it I get plenty of rejection letters myself for all sorts of stuff, and um, it's tough to get those. Um, and so, hopefully, I try to take the approach of this is just a learning opportunity, and it's not right for this or for now. So I, yeah, I should I want to pause and just say you know, kudos to all of you out there that are submitting in any genre for us or other publications, and, and keep it up. Um,
3: and, a, and a big thank you to, to everyone that's willing to contribute content to this publication. Yep. You know, whether it gets published or not, your interest drives our mission, uh, and we appreciate you um, even if we can't always show it by accepting what you give us uh just the fact that you took that step paul's right it does take guts uh you know we're, we're grad students we live in a sea of rejection <laughs> um but that's you know that's part of it yeah. uh because even though we do i think you know, both of us would say we've had our fair share of, of success we've, we've gotten our fair share of yeses um but that's that's because we've gone back and you know we've, we've done these things we've contemplated through writing you know through study uh, you know, the the work that we're doing. And I, I think fiction is the same. Uh, I, I think that those moves that you're making to bring out a world, to bring out a perspective um, in a way that's unexpected and in a way that's fascinating, it just sucks you, you know, That's That's the same kind of work. So, you know, if you submit, uh, thank you. Um, if you're someone we've published in the past and you're listening to this, thank you. Um, and if you're a subscriber to the magazine, double um, and keep sending those stories, and keep working on your writing.
2: I think that is a, a great way to close it, yeah, we, we literally exist to, uh, to have, we have the privilege to publish what you're submitting to us, we could not do what we do without what you do, our mission is to bring together different voices, different perspectives, and be able to kind of share those with our readers, so yeah, thank you. It's a great job. Alright, with that, I think uh, maybe it's time to sign off. Yep.
3: Um, thanks, y'all, for listening to this rambling and incoherent
2: account
3: of, <laughs> of editing at Carolina Quarterly. Um, I hope that uh, you are at least more confused than you were when you started <laughs> listening. Um, but, but in all seriousness, thanks for sticking with us uh, once again. Matt Duncan, co-editor of fiction, Carolina Quarterly.
2: Paul Blom, co-editor of fiction, Carolina Quarterly. Thanks for sticking with us, and thanks for listening.
0: That about does it for this episode of CQ Speaks. If you like what we do here, be sure to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening. Check out our website, thecarolinacquarterly.com for more content and links to subscribe and buy issues. If you think you have fiction or nonfiction or poetry or art that you think we might like for some media or other, there's also a link to our submittable page. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at NC underscore quarterly and Facebook at facebook.com slash Carolina Quarterly. Okay, that's it for now. Read well, write well, and thanks for listening to soon